Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. I think when we talk about financial trauma, we talk about financial therapy and financial psychology, what my mission today is to normalize these conversations so that it's not like the big bad wolf, right? Because most people think about financial perfection and it's an illusion, right? There's no such thing as financial perfection where the energy needs to be placed on financial resilience. What does it look like when you get hit with this issue and how do you navigate it so that you're not a deer in headlights or you're not burying your head in the sand or you're not like going on this spending spree to make you feel better about the fact that you're already in an issue. And I think especially for the entrepreneur population, and I'm going to raise my hand as being a victim of this, when we start to panic about not knowing what we don't know, we have a tendency to spend more money. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in.
Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Rakim, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, let's start off with an intro. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So my name is Rakim Sabri, and I cover financial trauma and financial empowerment for people who look like me. Tell me, have you always been in this space or, or what was your journey to becoming a personal finance creator? Because I find that for many folks that I talk to, this was not a part of the original plan. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I've been working in banking for about a decade before I made my departure. And that was just like my day job. Money, interacting with customers, the financial literacy piece was more kind of like a personal project. But I really, I started personal branding and mentorship. So my first book was titled Mentorship, the Playbook. And I thought it was really important to kind of talk about mentorship from a different perspective, really empowering the mentee by giving them kind of a template for questions that they should be asking and then giving the mentors kind of the heads up, right? Like, what should you be doing for your mentee instead of just kind of waiting for them to come to you and ask you for something? So there was kind of like this dual voice that I use in the book and the warm and fuzzies, right? Like people thought it was cute or whatever. I got some support, but I noticed that a lot of people were asking me or looking for financial content because that was my day job. So what and exactly so did, did you do for work? I worked in banking for the first six years I was customer facing. I did literally everything in the branch side. So I started as a part-time teller and went all the way up through manager. Wow, and then my last four years. Tellers. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. And then my last four years, I was behind the scenes. So I did operational support for their outbound email chat and social media. Okay. So you find yourself in this world of finance, which let's be honest, we really don't see a lot of people of color in general. And so you're giving out advice for folks to kind of become their own advocates in their careers and really make the most of like mentorship relationship, but you're getting folks asking you more money questions. So tell me yep. how that pivot manifested for you. So two things um, occurred. One, I started writing my second book, which was originally the concept was funny. I was 29 at the time. And the concept was 30 things that you should accomplish before 30. And so I'm working with a book coach and we're going through the list and all of the things that I am reciting are financial. So I'm like, okay, I got the 800 credit score. I bought a house. I'm leasing my vehicles. I'm investing in the stock market. And he's like, all of this stuff is financial stuff. Like, are you sure you don't want to talk about finances? And I'm like, no, like I'm completely over it. And he goes, okay, let's do an exercise. You're at an airport. Somebody approaches you and they say, 
I need you to speak on any topic in the next 30 minutes. We'll pay you any amount. What is that topic? And I said, personal finance. And he's like, then that's what you need to write about. So while I'm writing for this, writing this book, rather, um, I'm preparing for a TEDx talk around financial empowerment. And the way that the timing lined up, the book published the day before the TEDx. And I talk about my story growing up experiencing poverty and how I overcame that. And so it was a one-two punch. And with the branding and the media, I did like a press release about it. I was featured in an article for Black Enterprise. And I'm like, okay, this is the lane, right? Like people are feeling this. So I might as well just kind of double down. And I haven't looked back. That's so interesting. And I want to dive into so many of the aspects of your story that you mentioned there. First and foremost, let's go back in time to your childhood, your money story. I think so many folks get a lot of value out of those collective experiences that we share growing up as first-gen kids, folks who grow up in poverty, in the cycle of struggle, and you've not been shy about your own journey. So can you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like and how your money story was formed because of it? Yeah. So I became aware of the household finances probably in my mid to late teens. My parents were young parents and they had separated. So, you know, I was helping my mom out quite a lot with just managing like the day to day. And so that looked like holding the food stamps card. So I became aware of the fact that we had food stamps taking eviction notices off the door. So I became aware of the fact that we had Section 8. And so there was an aspect of budgeting involved because I knew what the balance was on the food stamps card. I would go do the grocery shopping. And so I had to kind of like pick and choose based off of the instruction that my mom had given me. Are we buying the name brand cereal or the knockoff, right? And so all of those kind of survival behaviors impacted me in that I was like, okay, well, if I could do this, from my mom, then I could do this for me. And essentially, the way that I describe it in a TEDx talk was I aspire to be poor. And what that looked like was when, in my mind, when I was of age to go out and be an independent adult, I would continue exhibiting these same behaviors because these are the things that I was exposed to and that I knew and that I was already doing. When we talk about money stories, like it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to be poor, right? It was just that this was the lowest hanging fruit that made the most sense for me. And so I couldn't really conceptualize a path to a different way. Mm -hmm. And so how did that physically manifest for you? Like, what are some of the decisions that you found yourself making that were affirming that idea in your head that like you were aspiring to be poor? Well, I think the biggest example was just, you know, what my plan was when I left my mom's house. So we moved from New York in 2010. So I was 20 years old. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go get an apartment. So I'll save money and then I'll go find me an apartment and that'll be the thing. We moved actually to Texas. And so I was down in Texas for eight months and then we moved back up north to Connecticut. And I started working in banking and my manager owned a multifamily house. And she was like five years older than I was. So I'm like, whoa. How do you own a house at this age? And we started to have really open conversations around personal finance, around her personal finances. And I'm like, all right, this is something that I could do because she did it. So how do I figure out how to do this? And what are the steps that I need to do to execute on that? So in terms of like the physical manifestation, the timing was just perfect, being in the right place at the right time, but also looking at 
is this thing possible? And how do I make this thing possible for me? And so when you say something like you're aspiring to be poor, where my mind goes is like, well, I'm not even going to try to like get a better job or I'm not going to try to like build wealth or any of those things. And I think a lot of folks have these limiting beliefs, if you will, that stop them from pursuing things that they feel are just not for them because they just don't see other people doing them. Did you experience anything like that as you were growing up? Yes and no. So I think because I was so young, I, you know, I was certainly, I started working when I was 16 years old. I was making money, but I was making money just for the sake of making money, right? There was no purpose behind it. Didn't know anything about like really investing for the future. I knew I should save, but I didn't know what I should save for. So saving looked like saving for the new PlayStation, whatever, right? Or saving for a trip. When I turned 21 and I started working in banking, that's where the shift started to occur. And that's where kind of I started to experience independence, not to be confused with financial independence, but independence in that I could use my money for my own stuff and that I should use my money for my own stuff. And that was the same time that this shift was occurring. So there wasn't a limiting mindset from the perspective of, well, I'm not going to pursue more because I was always an ambitious person, but I just think I didn't know what more looked like. And that was the turning point for me when I started to be exposed to people who had more, who expected more. And I'm like having conversations with them, like, wait a second, like, you could do this, like you could do this right now. And so for me, I think homeownership, again, being the best example, I ended up buying a home at 26. So we're looking at the mindset shift occurring between the ages of 21 and 25 to get me prepared to make that decision. You know, that's a short period of time coming from a background of like, you know, living in an apartment in New York on Section 8. Yeah. But it was kind of aligned to what my life experience was in that moment. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I've had the same sort of five-year trajectory when I look at my life now versus like 2017 being in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and all this shit that is completely like, I feel like that was a different person that I look at now. And yeah. when you get intentional about your money, it's amazing how quickly things can happen. So can you walk us through kind of what that journey was like for you starting with buying that home? Like how did that start to kind of shift how you saw money in general? It is the shift, right? So I hate to sound cliche in this, but I was gifted the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was, I think, 24. And when I read through the book, the reality of the situation was it exposed me to concepts I never heard of before, right? The multifamily home, the cash flow quadrant, the different income streams, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm like, okay, I know that this is real, that people are doing this. And I just was like a sponge. Anything financial, anything Robert Kiyosaki had his name attached to, like I was reading, I was watching, I was participating in. I went to his free seminars. I went to his paid seminars. Like I paid for the advanced trainings. All of those things were like, okay, I want to make this change in my life. Once I ended up actually buying the house and we can kind of, you know, back into that from the financial trauma perspective, then it was like, all right, I have this thing, right? I made this accomplishment. I also bought like a new car shortly after that. I actually started to realize that I was experiencing depression mm -hmm. and I had a little bit of shame about that because 
what reason do I have to be depressed, right? I just right. bought a new house. I bought a new car. Like, I'm making good money. I have Living great credit. Like, right. And, um, and depression is a weird thing because as much as you try to rationalize it, it's an irrational experience. So I'm beating myself up for feeling this way and not understanding where it's coming from or what reason or justification I have for feeling this way while still having to show up at work and, you know, do the job and, you know, be the friend and the son and the brother. That was its own journey. What I realized, or rather what I realize now, maybe six or seven years later, is that more than the accomplishment of like being able to touch this property, that it represented a pathway to success for other people. Not too long ago that through purchasing my home, I have been able to directly influence the purchase of at least four other properties. And literally it was just because people were like, oh, Rakim did it. I can do it. And so there, you know, there were conversations certainly had around, well, what kind of credit score do you need? What kind of program do you go after? Like how much money do you need to put down, et cetera, et cetera. But it was like seeing somebody who you can touch, call, talk to, do this thing all of a sudden made it possible for at least four other people. So when we talk about the impact of these decisions and this money journey, like I don't like to look at it through the lens of, okay, this is my accomplishment and like here's the trophy. I like to look at it through the lens of representation, to your point, right? That there's not a lot of us in this space showing other people how to do these things. Right. And really just by doing, just by existing, you give people permission to dream and you give them kind of a formula to follow mm-hmm. through. Yeah, that's so true. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is just show up and that gives people the permission to do the same. So I feel like when you were talking about hitting all of these milestones and then finding yourself depressed, you were literally like re- telling my own story because I had the exact same experience. Early 30s, got married, bought the house, had the six-figure career. And I'm like, I fucking hate my life. What am I doing? (laughs) How does one start to reconcile those feelings? And what started to come up for you that now you identify as financial trauma? Like, Where were those feelings coming from? It was hard because I was very functional. So I kind of just pushed them away like, oh, you know, it's not anything, right? But funny story, at that particular point in time in my life, every weekend I was going out to dance. So I have a friend out here and known each other since college. And we would go out to like the Spanish club and, you know, we would dance like salsa, bachata, merengue every like every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, without missing it. And suddenly he would call me to go dance. And I'm like, yeah. And I would go get in the shower and I would start getting dressed, and then I would stop. I would maybe get my pants on, and then I would just stop. And I would turn the light off, and I would put my phone on silent, and I would get in the bed. And it was like this unexplainable thing. And so he's blowing up my phone, and he's like, yo, like, what's going on? And I'm like, not answering. And I didn't realize that there was a problem until one day I just broke out in tears. Like, I just started crying randomly. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? And so that's how it started to manifest. And I'm like, all right, I need to pay attention to what's going on here. And I still don't know like what it was that triggered that and how long it was going on. But I realized like when I stopped doing the things that I enjoyed doing, that there was a problem. 
And that even though I could put on my corporate face and go to work and do the job and do the job well, that I wasn't taking the time that I needed to like really get to know myself and understand what was happening to me. The impact on finances, though, was not significant, right? Like I wasn't doing any of the bad things. If anything, I was doing more good things, right? I stopped spending money. Like I stopped going out. You know, I was still investing. I was still making, you know, my regular income. But I think maybe there was some hoarding involved. And when we talk about financial trauma and the way that it manifests, a lot of times we look at negative spending patterns instead of what could be perceived as positive behaviors through the accumulation of money or, you know, this heavy investing. But that can also be, you know, a tell of financial trauma, right? Because you're hoarding this money so that you don't lose it. You're hoarding this money so that, you know what I'm saying? And and my goal- That's like me. (laughs) Literally, I'm a fucking hoarder. (laughs) I remember telling somebody, I said, I never want to be poor again. Yes. Like I want to put so much distance between me and poverty that, you know, it's just not even a possibility, right? So I think, you know, that's how- trauma manifests for me personally, and that people will look at that and be like, oh, well, you're doing good financially. Like today I was, I I just bought a car yesterday. Oh, congrats. And I was talking, thank you. And I was talking to my brother about it and I was kind of like facing a dilemma and I was just like, well, you know, I had a lease previously and I was considering like selling down some of my, um, my stocks to buy it out. And I'm like, I won't have a payment anymore. Like I'm going through all of the justification, right? And the lease payout was like, I mean, the lease buyout was like 16 grand. So I'm telling my brother this and he goes, you have 16 grand Mm. in stocks. (laughs) And I'm like, I have more than that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, wow. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to spend it. Right. Especially now, like we're in the down market. Mm -hmm. But to him and, you know, my brother grew up with me. So his experiences with, you know, the household finances were very similar to him. It's like that's an amazing thing. And I'm over here like shitting bricks because I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to sell my investments so I could buy this car. Yeah. That's not ultimately what ended up having. I ended up leasing again. And so I didn't have to spend any money, but it was still like, you know, as we're talking about this exercise, the anxiety that came with, oh my God, I'm going to have to sell this money that I put away for this reason. Mm -hmm. It has an impact. Yep. That's my life right now. Actually, I'm in this like, do I buy a house? Do I not? I was a previous homeowner. I have a lot of trauma with that experience. And I always get excited about the prospects until it becomes a little too real. And then I'm like a fucking deer in headlights. It's like, oh my God, how am I going to pay for this? What if my business fails? What am I going to do? And it's just like, you get so caught up in the fatalistic, trying to predict the future. You are convinced that like everything that you've built will be destroyed if you make this one decision that it stops you from doing anything. That's my life when it comes to real estate. I definitely still need therapy on that. And I've definitely found myself in more of like a hoarding phase as a business owner because now it's like, all right, bitch, you jumped out the plane. You better make this shit work, okay? Because it's not just about you. Now I employ my sister. So I'm like, yo, if my business fails, my sister ain't got a job. Like, 
my parents are looking at me like, you're going to retire us, right? And I'm like, oh my God, I did not sign up for all this fucking therapy. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) It's so important. Like some of the things that you mentioned, right? Like we talk about money shame and what that looks like. And money shame can look like expectations associated with family who say, oh, but you have money, so you should be able to do X, Y, Z thing. And that we feel, and especially when you look at like Black and Latina communities, where there is a big emphasis on like communal, right? Communal living, giving back, like family. And what is the obligation that you have to family? And how do you enforce or how do you put down boundaries that say, well, yes, I love my family and I will do this for my family, but this is mine and you can't cross that line. And then when you talk about the real estate, and you're right, we're twinning right now, because when I bought my house, well, rather when I was in the process of buying my house, and I got to the execution phase, the what if questions started to come up. And you know that was coming from a place of trauma, because I knew that if something happened major, like I needed a new roof, I needed a new furnace, anything, that there's nobody that I could call to say, hey, I need five, 10, 15 grand to build me out of this situation. And so here I am, 26 years old, trying to figure out like, well, what am I going to do in this instance? And I almost let that stop me from buying a house because I'm thinking all of these what ifs, like what if I lose my job? I think at the time I was making like 45 a year. So I'm like, okay, what if I lose my job? What if I can't afford to pay the mortgage? Will I go into foreclosure? Will they take the house from me? And you're getting to you're getting ahead of yourself. You're thinking about the embarrassment of losing the house. I'm thinking about the embarrassment of losing the house before I even buy the house. And so it took a lot of support from the people who weren't in my family, the people who had done this already, mm-hmm. to tell me when I bought my house, I was making less money than you were. Mm-hmm. If you come up with this issue, this is what the plan is going to look like. Yeah. When you're buying the house and you go through the inspection, you want to look at XYZ thing so that you can figure out what's the lifeline on the roof, the furnace, whatever. Six years later, like I've had to replace the roof. <laughs> like before I jumped on this call, I was, I have to replace a piece in my furnace. I've had a flood in the house. Like I've had to deal with insurance claims and stuff like that. But you don't know how to navigate all of those things until you go through it. Yeah. And by like anticipating the pain before you even get into the position where it's a reality that's a trauma, right? Like I just, Mm -hmm. like I said, I don't want to be poor again. And how embarrassing would it be to leave my mom's house to go buy a house and then have the house taken from me and I got to go back to my mom's house. So I think when we talk about financial trauma, we talk about financial therapy and financial psychology. What my mission today is to normalize these conversations so that it's not like the big bad wolf, right? Because most people think about financial perfection. Mm-hmm. And it's an illusion, right? There's no such thing as financial perfection. Right. Even in these markets, right? We see the fluctuations where the energy needs to be placed on financial resilience, right? Mm. What does it look like when you get hit with this issue and how do you navigate it so that you're not a deer in headlights yeah. or you're not burying your head in the sand or you're not like going on this spending spree to make you feel better about the fact that you're already in an issue? And I think specifically for, or rather, especially for the entrepreneur population, and I'm going to raise my hand as, as, you know, being a victim of this, 
when we start to panic about not knowing what we don't know, we have a tendency to spend more money, right? Mm. And what that looks like could be hiring a coach just because, right? Not doing any due diligence or just because somebody else has a coach. So I'm going to hire this coach. (laughs) What that can look like is hiring an advertising agency. And I'm speaking from experience, right? I've Mm -hmm. done all of these things. After quitting my job, right? Dumping off the deep end, didn't have any money coming in. I'm like, I'm going to spend money on a coach. I'm going to spend money on an advertising agency. I'm going to spend money on figuring out how to put a course together. I'm going to buy courses. And so now you're spending anxiously because you need to have the best stuff to make your business work Mm -hmm. and you're deeper in the hole. And so where I find myself now at a year and a half out from corporate, shout out to you making a year and a half, (laughs) is digging myself out of a mess that I've created for myself because I was worried about what longevity was going to look like as an entrepreneur. That was coming from a place of anxiety. That was coming from a place of trauma. And that was coming from a place of trying to be financially perfect. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So you mentioned that you quit your corporate job. First off, what was the impetus or the catalyst for you to decide like that that was the right move for you? And you mentioned like just you're jumping out of the plane without a plane necessarily. (laughs) So what inspired you to take that route? Because as someone who is like hella conservative type A, like build it while you're flying, that gives me way too much anxiety. I can never do something like that. Yeah, there was a lot of anxiety and fear involved in that decision. Yeah. But again, I have to kind of like point to timing. So I started taking off like in the PR kind of media space in 2021. So I'm like being featured in all these publications. I'm writing for all these publications. I had done the TEDx. I had the two books out. 2021 was my first FinCon, although I did it virtually. And I was a speaker. Like I applied and they said, yeah, like you're going to be a speaker. So I'm like, FinCon, like I heard so much about it, but I'd never been. I'm like, all right, like I'm killing it right now. But the thing was, while I was working, I was sharing this stuff on LinkedIn. And every time I shared some kind of accomplishment or milestone, my manager would like, oh, we need to have a one-on-one about this. We need to talk about this. What's the reason that you're doing this thing? What's your commitment to the company? Are you using the company as a stepping stone? What's next? What's next? What's next? And I knew already, like my manager was bullying me or, you know, she was trying to bully me and she didn't like me. And I knew she didn't like me. Like it was no secret. So it just got to a point, a boiling point really, where I just, I was tired of being questioned about my intent. I felt like I had enough clout that I could go out and like figure something out. And I took inventory of what I owned, right? My stocks and my cash and the amount of credit I had available to me. And I said, you know what? Like I could do this. Like I could survive for the next six to eight months and figure something out. And uh, (laughs) it was a Friday before Memorial Day, I think. And um, she sent me an email on the Wednesday looking for something. And I was just really, really, really annoyed. And, you know, that whole week I'm thinking, like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to quit my job. And people are quitting left and right. Like, I'm seeing all over social media, the great resignation is happening. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. So I'm talking to people all week, like friends, family, like, I think I'm going to quit my job. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... 
partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. What were they saying to you? It was a mix. So I'll go with my mom first because, you know, my mom is definitely my, like, sounding board for a lot of things. She told me no. She told me don't quit your job. (laughs) And, you know, my personality, like, I was always, like, the honor roll kid. Like, I did everything right, like, forever. So... It was a big thing. She's like, don't do it. Don't quit your job. And I'm like, Ma, like, I'm miserable. Like, miserable. And she's like, let them fire you so you could collect unemployment. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that because I know how the HR process works, right? They're going to have to, you know, document. They're going to have to build a case. And they're going to assassinate my character before I leave. And I worked really hard to get to the place that I was at. I said, no, I'm going to leave abruptly. So that they know that they lost out on talent and so that there is internal dialogue around what the hell just happened. Because I had just got a bonus. I had just got a raise. Like I was a high performing employee. And so like I didn't want them to make it seem like, oh, COVID, Rakim lost his mind and he just stopped being a good employee. I wanted them to say, no, like this guy was high performing and he dipped Without giving notice, I didn't give notice. I quit the same day like that I gave my resignation. And I feel bad saying this, but I did not give them, lock them out of everything. Everything that I had built, everything that I had created, like I left nothing. Like you guys figure this all out. <laughs> that is like was, an epic <laughs> story, I got to say. I'm like, damn, that's the shit from the movies. Okay. Yeah. You just <laughs> missed the building on fire. <laughs> Basically... And nobody really knew what I did. Yeah. Like, because the the position was created and then I filled the role. So I had the role for four years. And, um, you know, I had documents and stuff, whatever, in my own personal like folders, but not like anywhere that anybody else had it. But it was like, why are you making me justify this role that you hired me for? Mm. You created this role. Like, I didn't create this role. Why am I telling you why I'm valuable? You should be telling me that I am valuable. I knew that I couldn't win any other way than the way that I did. So I burnt that bridge mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> I tweeted it and I didn't expect anything to happen. Cause I was, you know, at that point in time, tweeting into the void and then the tweet goes viral. Oh shit. And like over the next, like, you know, like I said, it was a Friday. So over the, the weekend, 2.2 million impressions later, <laughs> people are retweeting and congratulating me. me? (laughs) They're like, congratulations. Like, I wish I could do that. And because I was writing for publications at the same time, I was like, oh, like, let me stoke this a little bit. So Mm. I wrote an article for Business Insider. I wrote an article for Entrepreneur. I wrote an article for The Griot. And of course, all of these things are going viral. Bigger Pockets Money reached out to me. Like, they're like, do you want to be on our podcast? And I'm like, hell yeah, like Bigger Pockets. (laughs) Um, a producer from the Tamron Hall show reached out to me and had me on the oh, show. Oh my God. It was like, it was a big deal. And that's when I started like finding, you know, everybody else who was like, I found your content. Um, shortly after that, I found uh, Gigi's content. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, just so many people who are like 
quitting, like just right. sticking it to the man. And I'm like, hell yeah. Like, w- like we need to be heard. Yes. And um, yeah, I mean, no regrets, no regrets whatsoever. Uh, I, um, it's incredible. It, it was, it was the best decision of my life. Okay. So first I want to go back a little bit because you mentioned before that you were writing books. And I know there's a lot of people who, when they're thinking about, you know, cementing themselves as an authority, as a speaker, et cetera, that's kind of the initial thought process for wanting to do that. Was that your thought process? Like, did you envision this in some way that this was going to be your future? Because, I mean, you've done a TED Talk. Like, this is major shit. So I feel like even though it wasn't part of the plan, it feels like it kind of was. Exactly what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, so rabbit hole time, right? So uh, my first book, Mentorship, was not for public consumption originally. Like I said, I was experiencing depression and I was given the advice that I should start writing my feelings. And I did. You know, I just kind of did like an analysis of my life and the things that got me to where I was at that point. And when I started typing it up and then reviewing it, I'm like, man, there's a teachable moment here. There's a teachable moment here. And what I don't share very often, as far as that book goes, is that I looked at journals that I had kept from like the sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade to help build. Like I even post excerpts from those journals in that book. And like I said, it was just for me, like it wasn't for anybody else. But when I was considering the process for like, how do you actually make this a book instead of a manuscript in Word? And I discovered self-publishing through Amazon, I realized that Amazon would distribute it. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So like, maybe I could make this for public consumption. And so I published the book and then I'm like, boom, like, you know how Beyonce does? She just drops it. There was no advertising. There was no like fanfare around. It was just like, okay, I have a book. And people were like, like, what? Like you have a book? So of course I got a little bit of support, but it was mostly family and friends. Fast forward to book two that there was more strategy around and I hired a coach and he actually asked me like, what is the goal? Like, what do you want to happen as a result of this book? And I said, I want to be on TV. I want to be on Ellen's show. (laughs) That was the goal. So he's like, okay. And so we backed into our marketing strategy and cover design strategy and even the title from the lens of, okay, we need something that's going to capture people's attention very quickly and make them kind of like scratch their head like, hmm. And so the title of uh, book two was Financially Irresponsible. And, you know, there's like a green cover with a caricature of me holding a credit card on on the cover. And, um, you know, when you see like that money green cover with the words financially irresponsible on it, it does tend to kind of make people stop and say, okay, well, you know, what's this about? Mm -hmm. And so that was the intent. But also... Financially irresponsible was kind of like a double entendre, right? It was like, okay, we're talking about how can you be more financially responsible by understanding that deferring your money management to somebody else is irresponsible, right? Like you need to know the ins and outs of money, even if you are going to let somebody else manage it. But also there were some things that I talk about in the book that would be considered by traditionalist irresponsible, right? So I talk about 
you know, the average American having two and a half credit cards, I had at the time like nine. So I'm like, I have nine credit cards. Why do I have nine credit cards? And I didn't have the vocabulary at that particular point in time to point to financial trauma. But, you know, between me and you, when I thought about needing to repair my roof or furnace or whatever, and not having somebody that I can call to bail me out, I knew that I at least had the credit limit to cover it. So I was very intentional and very aggressive early on around not only getting access to multiple lines of credit, but very high lines of credit. Yeah. So like my oldest credit card is from 2011 and it has a $75,000 limit. So it was like, okay, in the event of any like major emergency, I'll at least be able to bill myself out or buy myself time. And being able to bail myself out without having to kind of go call down the list of people like, hey, I need some money. Talking about that in the book in hindsight was definitely very clever, but I realized too that it could perpetuate some bad habits in people who aren't prepared to receive the information. And I was clear in that book to definitely put a bunch of disclaimers like, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you what I did. You know, I still don't have any regrets around it. (laughs) No, I mean, it sounds like it was great for you to, again, cement yourself as an authority in this space. That's what people, I think, don't understand that you have to do, like, beyond just having a social media platform. Like, you have to have something beyond just an Instagram handle when you really want to be taken seriously as a thought leader and an expert, whether that's, like, having your own website, having your own book, having a podcast, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, like, you got to get that headquarters of where all your thoughts lie. And sometimes that looks like a book. Yeah. So that's really cool. Now let's talk about financial trauma, right? Because that's your area of expertise. And again, I think it's still something that's still a very fresh new concept for a lot of people. There has as of late been more conversations around like mental health and money, Mm -hmm. but I think there's still a lot of room to have those conversations. So For folks who think that they might be experiencing financial trauma, maybe what are some signs that the way that you're behaving with money could be from a result of trauma? Yeah, let me give a a definition first. So I define financial trauma as any instance observed or experienced that has a negative impact on the way you view, interact with, or believe about money. So that creates a lot of room, right, for a spectrum And I think that that spectrum is appropriate because you might have very little trauma coming from some 17-year-old on TikTok telling you to invest in Dogecoin, right? And you you dump your life savings into it and, you know, we see what's happening with the crypto market. Or you could have major trauma, like a traumatic event occur, like an eviction. Being homeless. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Being homeless, having, you know, a repo or anything like that. So we think about going back to this concept of financial resilience, how then do you rebound from an experience like that? And I think that's where trauma lives. Trauma goes into, like you talked about, you want to do this thing, but you have apprehension around doing this thing because you had a bad experience around it. Or the money stories that, going back to my story, growing up in poverty, like how does that influence your behaviors around money today? And I think trauma is so, I'll use the word like codified, right? So Mm -hmm. when you talk about how do you show signs and symptoms, well, you could be doing everything right 
but your beliefs are reflecting the opposite, right? Your beliefs are reflecting scarcity or lack and that it looks like, oh, you know, this person is saving 50% of their income, 60% of their income, 70% of their income. Well, from the financial literacy bros, you're doing the right thing. But when you dig deeper and understanding like the psychological motivations behind that hoarding of money, you realize it's coming from a place of trauma. Okay, so why are you hoarding this money? Do you not feel safe, comfortable, secure in your lifestyle? Do you feel like there's some massive event that's taking place? I mean, when we look at physical hoarders, right? My mom loves to show hoarders. Look at physical (laughs) hoarders, right? And the way that they accumulate junk, but justify the accumulation of that junk because of its significance to them or whatever, you realize that there's a problem there. The problem with money and hoarding money is that most people don't consider hoarding money a bad thing because, oh, this person has money. So you can't really identify like that those, and as I dig deeper into like the financial psychology and I look at the parallels between, you know, that quote where they say, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that I hoard money, but I also know that that hoarding tendency can manifest itself in other ways. So maybe I, I hoard physical items, right? Maybe I, I hoard experiences, right? And it's not the outcome that matters as much as what's happening inside of you psychologically that dictates that outcome. And that's really hard to pinpoint and I guess validate because people's motivations are different. So when you combine like this concept of personal finances personally and the concept of money trauma or financial trauma or financial psychology, it really opens up this whole new world Because we can jump on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, see all of the people telling you that you should be doing X, Y, Z thing, but we're not talking about like compulsion, right? We're not talking about scarcity. (laughs) We're not talking about any of the things that like, if they existed in any other arena, but finances would be a problem. When I talk about financial trauma, I definitely talk about it through the lens of like the black experience. And I talk about like, how historically in this country, Black people have experienced generational trauma, right? And it's not, right. it's not just Black people, but you know, I'm talking through the lens of my experience. Black people have experienced trauma in every facet of their lives. And so when we look at all of the statistics that go out around income, around spending and consumerism, around irresponsibility financially, we have to look at, well, what is the root cause of that? Right. Yeah. And I use this example with my dad quite a lot. My dad studies psychology too. So we like nerd out over this. (laughs) Like the whole like hip hop culture. What's the big deal around like bling bling? Why are people wearing all of their wealth on watches and chains and their teeth or whatever? Right. Well, my dad's like, well, look at history. Right. If, you know, we live down south as black people and we're trying to escape the south and, you know, the, the atrocities and Jim Crow and all that stuff from the south. You have to wear your wealth in order to transport it because there was no like, I'm putting it in my Bank of America account in Alabama and I'm going to withdraw it from my Bank of America account in New York. We had to wear our wealth literally in order to transport it or in order to have it not be taken away from us. But then you think about like how that cultural phenomenon from a place of survival ended up becoming the thing to do, right? I'm lit, I'm hot, I got, you know, I got the bling bling. 
And what is the impact of that in today's world where you have these millionaire rappers hanging out with people who are struggling and they're becoming a target, right? Yeah. So there's trauma there that we don't even acknowledge because it's just like, oh, well, that person's just flaunting. Like, oh, that person just wants to show off. And certainly I think that there are aspects of that that is true. But like, let's look beyond the surface. I would argue that's also a trauma response too, right? You're seeking validation 100%. in a society where you have not had that. Like you were seen as less than. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I mean, we, we see that happening with Twitter right now, right? And every right. <laughs> the people buying the blue checks. Yeah. And we live in a society that places so much more value on being validated. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, what the quickest way to validation is, is money. Like how much money you have yeah. and how and how you can demonstrate that whether that be through lifestyle marketing, whether that be through just how you're living, keeping up with the Joneses. And that's not a problem. And you know, I, I want to be clear here too. That's not a problem that just exists in minority communities, right? So when I worked in banking and I, I worked in mass affluent neighborhoods, there were accountants and lawyers and doctors who would come in and they would have the Benz or the BMW outside. And you know, they're coming in asking for fee refunds. And you're seeing like this high income, but you're also seeing this high outcome, right? Like they're spending <laughs> spending the money that they're make they're making rather to keep up with the Joneses to maintain like this status symbol. Yeah. And so it's, it's like <laughs> right. It's it's a problem that we all have. And it's yeah. just minority communities and certainly minority communities that are experiencing poverty are under the spotlight. But this financial trauma and financial literacy impacts, or illiteracy rather, impacts everybody. Yeah. You have my brain spinning right now because I realize now that there is such a diverse spectrum of what that trauma can show up as. And like you mentioned, right, it's very easy to like say, well, you know, clearly you're traumatized because you're just spending all your money because you don't believe you're worthy of having money. On the opposite end, there's somebody like me where I like act, I know I hoard money, even things like food, like, right. As a kid, I was like taught you eat everything on your plate. And then I ended up having like an unhealthy relationship with food for many years where it's like I overate because that's just like what they told us to do. Like you can't waste food. Yep. And I even find myself today still like putting shit in the freezer Knowing I'm never going to actually get back to this, I'm going to find it a year and a half later, but it's like you just can't throw it away, right? Yeah. Um, so it's like it can manifest itself in ways that are big and small. It can look like compulsion, you know, overthinking, analysis paralysis, false action taking, like you mentioned, signing up for shit that has nothing to do with what you actually want to accomplish, but it makes you feel like you're actually taking some action towards your goals. You know, there's just like so many things. And I think that that introspection and starting to really ask yourself, like, why am I doing this with my money? Instead of just saying, oh, because I saw it on TikTok or because it it's in a book or because I see everybody else doing it. I think that's the core that I've come to the conclusion of when we want to really get intentional with money, we have to start asking ourselves, like, why? Yeah. Why do we want to do this? Why do I want that house? Why do I need that job title? Why do I want this second degree? Why do I want to marry this person? Like, all of the things that we're doing in life, we need to start asking, what is the root of this? Yep. What is the root cause of the desire that I have to want to accomplish this thing? 100%. So for folks who are like, damn, you know, 
I think I got some financial trauma to address and I am going to probably want to investigate how I can work with Rakim to find out, you know, first off, what is my trauma? And then how do I start overcoming it? What are the best ways for folks to find you, follow you, work with you and really start to navigate this? You know, it's a heavy topic, but I think it's something that we all need to really talk about. Yeah. Super heavy topic. And there are people who are doing the work besides me. So I just want to shout out like organizations like the Financial Therapy Association, the AFCPE, people who are like licensed clinical therapists who focus on finance. But um, wanting to work with me specifically, I'm active on all social media at Rakim Sabri, no underscores, hyphens, or periods. I think my top two social media platforms are definitely Twitter and Instagram right now, although I'm starting to get more active on TikTok. Um, I have a Substack, a free Substack, where I send out a newsletter every Friday on just stories and anecdotes around overcoming financial trauma. And so that's at rakimsabri.substack.com. And I just started a podcast called Overcoming Financial Trauma, where I've been interviewing people and even just telling my own story around financial trauma or topics related to financial trauma. So there's a lot out there for you to sample. And then if you decide that you do want to work with me, um, starting in Q1 of 2023, I'm going to be working with individuals one-on-one again. I love that. And I'm so glad that you decided to quit that shitty corporate job and show up (laughs) for the community because the work that you do is incredible. I love seeing you continue to grow and continue to have impact and really just like give permission folks to acknowledge these feelings that they're having, that they know that something's not right, something's not okay. And to start really probing where those feelings are coming from and not feel shame about them, not feel guilt about them, but just realize like we all have a very complicated relationship with money. It's part of the human experience. And the best thing that you can do is first acknowledge that you don't have it all right. None of us do. And, you know, give yourself some grace and take the time that you need to invest in yourself, invest in working on your mindset, acknowledging where there's room for improvement and just taking one step at a time. For sure. Yeah. Focus on financial resilience, not financial perfection. I love that. I'm going to be carrying that with me from now on. It's like, girl, you need to stop trying to predict the future and realize that everything that you've already been through is evidence that you can do hard things. 100%. You can get past shit that you never even thought possible. I think that is what gives me the most comfort is knowing that we will figure it the fuck out regardless. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, Rakim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, Sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. 
This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.